Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment, and yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard, and when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit the thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Jeff, uh, I thought I'd tell one story about Killer Angels, that, or rather the movie version, Gettysburg, that uh, always struck me as an example of what you were saying earlier. Uh, in terms of the human story, the storytelling element, there's a moment in that movie when uh, Jeb Stewart returns to Lee's headquarters after going on his joyride around the Union Army and failing to provide Lee with the vital reconnaissance that he needed, which could have prevented the battle. Uh, finally, uh, Stewart shows up, and uh, in the movie, it's Martin Sheen, I believe, plays Lee, and he, uh, he just says, well, uh, General Stewart, I see you are here. Some people uh, I've read have criticized that portrayal, suggested it's not, uh, you know, Lee should have uh, just, just torn a strip off of Stewart. He should have yelled at him and raged at him. But that's not how uh, General Lee behaved, I thought. And I thought uh, uh, that Sheen captured it quite well. That was just how my old uh, graduate advisor, a uh, southern gentleman, uh, would have behaved if I'd done something wrong as, as a young subordinate. And it was all it takes, that harsh, just that look and that gentle, I see you are here, finally uh, implied, uh, to let you know that Stuart has been, been firmly and perm- thoroughly taken to the woodshed and punished. I think it's a great moment. And well, I agree with you. I mean, the, the point is, I mean, Walter Taylor, you know, Lee's, you know, Lee's uh, staff officer, wrote a magnificent book about his days with Lee. I mean, Lee does have a temper. Lee is subject to getting very angry, um, and yet he keeps it quiet, keeps it private, because exactly. that's not decorum. You do not explode at your at your your officers, and that sense of I don't I, I don't know if you just want to it's cliche to call it the, the Southern gentleman, but in fact, I mean, Lee understands that, that that's his personality. Uh, you don't reveal yourself that way emotionally, and and the respect that people like Jeb Stewart and Stonewall Jackson and, and James Longstreet and go right down the list, the respect that those people have for General Lee when he does admonish them with even a hint of anger. I mean, just just a look in the eye, as you That's say. That's all it takes. Um, it has an enormous impact. It does. You mentioned Taylor's memoirs, and one of the striking things about Killer Angels is how many times you can read a conversation in there and think, you know, that's in Fremantle's diary, or that's in Taylor's memoirs, or that's in uh, Haskell's letter. That I've read that somewhere. In other words, uh, uh, it's, it uses historical sources uh, very carefully and, and regularly. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, when you write your books, uh, what kind of research do you do to try to recapture that that effect? You just described it. I mean, I, that's the, one of the biggest lessons learned from my father is the kind of research that he did wherever possible diaries letters memoirs the accounts of the people who were there the one thing i stay away from with all due respect to modern biographers modern historians in all my books i i don't rely on modern history or biography because i'm putting words in the mouths of 
pivotal historical characters. That's a very risky thing to do. I have to believe that the words are authentic or you will never believe it. And it, sometimes and, and more often, there are not uh, word-for-word uh, original conversations. I mean, nobody was following these people around with legal pads, writing down everything they said. And that's my job. It was my father's job to put words in the mouths of these characters based on the research to try to get into their heads, to get into their personalities. One of the things I'm really proud of, no one is, even the number of historians that don't particularly care for what I do, and I hear a fair amount of that, one thing I've never heard is, you know, Robert E. Lee never would have said that, or George Washington never would have said that. I've never heard that criticism, because I'm so careful about not putting words in the mouths of these characters that don't ring true. If, if you start doing that, um, the, the story definitely loses credibility. Well, I, I agree with you. Let me uh, challenge you on that point, because there was one place in Gods and Generals where I thought, I don't think Chamberlain would have said that which is okay. the speech he makes to his students at Bowdoin College. Mm-hmm. And he just makes, it's one phrase, and, and it's standing out with, with me, Jeff, because so everything else does ring true, and that's why that one bit struck me differently. So I, I, I agree with what you say, that, that uh, I, I can see the care you take to make sure that these things do sound right. But he says something self-effacing. I think he refers to uh, uh, how the students should listen to authority figures. He says, well, then like your parents in a sort of offhand ironic way. And he gets a little chuckle from the audience. Mm-hmm. And that struck a chord with me because in the 19th century, people didn't use irony the way we do today. Well, you have to consider Chamberlain, first of all, if you've read his writings. I mean, you read Passing of the Armies. This is a man who's a couple of generations ahead of his time uh, in terms of how he sees the world um, and, and how he sees the war. And, in fact, that's one of the reasons that makes him uh, – one of the things that makes him a standout character. And I, I can't – you know, I can't really argue the point and say that I'm right and you're not. I mean, it, it could very well be that I allowed myself to – you know, slip a little bit into today in writing that particular scene, it happens. I I work like crazy to keep that from happening. I mean, I am painfully aware of anachronisms. I never put words or particular... I mean, you know, words that simply didn't exist or weren't in the vernacular at that time. I mean, that, that's a terrible thing to do to, to the legitimacy of your story is to have to put words in the mouths of people that people simply didn't say, you know, words and phrases. And, and you may be right about that. I mean, I, I really try to avoid things like that. But Well, I, I, I think you're very successful at it. And I think that if, if you weren't, uh, that wouldn't have, have, have popped off the page at me the way uh, I, there are plenty of bad historical novels you can read where after you know one chapter you're saying nobody acted like that. Exactly. Uh, uh, the movie Titanic, which was a huge success, uh, I thought had had the main characters behaving like 1990s teenagers on a, a early 20th century ship. They got well, not only that, but for example, if you take the film Pearl Harbor, where you have Alec Baldwin talking to these pilots. And what he's saying to them is, you know, we're in for a long, difficult fight, and a great many of you aren't going to come back. How did he know that? Exactly. I mean, sort of, you know, at the beginning of the Civil War, they, everybody thought it was going to be over after the first battle. That's right. And, and even Lee, in his most pessimistic moments, thought the war might last one year. So that, that, that's what Hollywood does. I mean, the idea of telling these stories with the benefit of hindsight is something I really struggle against. It's, it's my job to take myself away from today, 
put you into the minds of these characters and tell you their story as they would have told it. And, and I don't use hindsight, and uh, you know, and I don't use this sort of moral judgment. I never judge characters from our modern perspective. That, that's completely bogus uh, to telling a story like this. Uh, and I really, really work on that. Now, you you moved from writing uh, the Civil War books to a novel on the American Revolution, right? How what kind of a challenge was that? Serious challenge, because I mean, someone said to me, "Well, now you've broken with your father." Well, I didn't quite see it that way. Uh, I mean, I didn't consider that I was, you know, someone said, "You know, you're out from under your father's shadow." Well, I, I never felt there was a shadow. Um, he opened a marvelous door for me, but. I wanted to tell a different story. I mean, we had finished the, the Civil War trilogy, and I wanted to move on, and I wanted to go to different characters, and it's not about the event. I wasn't drawn to the American Revolution because of the, the power of the event. It was the characters. It always starts with the characters first. The, the letters of John and Abigail Adams, uh, the writings of Ben Franklin, uh, the people who were around George Washington, Light Horse Harry Lee and the Marquis de Lafayette. I have their memoirs. I mean, that kind of stuff, when you realize, I mean, I didn't know when I got into this, who is George Washington? I mean, is he a myth? Is he somebody who's been blown way out of proportion? We call him the father of our country. Is that, you know, sort of uh, just overblown uh, hyperbole? No, I am happy to tell you that this man deserves to be on the dollar bill. I mean, this man deserves to be called the father of his country. Benjamin Franklin changed history changed the history of the world by the way he manipulated the French to come into the American Revolution on our side. Had that not happened, we would have lost the war. Had Washington not been able to hold the troops together into a, you know, what was a rab, you know, just a, a terrible uh, description of an army, um, and he faced the finest military force in the world at that time, the British Army, and he won. Had he not been able to do that, you know, we would still be an English colony. I mean, that story, I think, is a story most people simply don't know. We know a little bit, but we really don't know what went into the signing of the Declaration of Independence, what went in the significance of Washington crossing the Delaware. I mean, it's a cliché, but what happened? What really happened, and what did that mean to the war and to, you know, the world that would follow? I got very excited. Right? Maybe you can tell my voice. I got very excited to tell that story, and I'm very, very proud of that. And I, I wonder if you're not on the crest of a wave that's starting, because if you look at uh, in the early 21st century, historians do seem to be turning a little bit more toward the founding era. Of Unfortunately, the, the, the problem with some of the stuff that has come out, including in Hollywood, I mean, if I mentioned the name Thomas Jefferson to you, you know, three or four years ago, everything was Sally Hemings. That's right. And while, you know, okay, I understand that that's, uh, whether it's legitimate or not, I have no idea. I mean, I don't, I don't get involved in that. Uh, that's one story about Thomas Jefferson. Well, I got another one. I mean, this is a man who writes the Declaration of Independence. He has Ben Franklin and John Adams looking over his shoulder, correcting it, editing it for him as he's writing it. That's a good story. Yeah. And I mean, to me, that's a much more important story than what Hollywood would rather you know, shove down our throats. Now, you, if you took on a sort of unknown story with uh, the revolutionary period, uh, your most recent novel goes to an era that, Americans really have, have dropped into the uh, 
amnesia been uh, the First World War? Well, certainly. I mean, look what Hollywood has given us over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, John Wayne and so forth, World War II. I mean, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of films on World War II. There are less than five good ones that I can name on the First World War. Um, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Gallipoli, uh, for, um, All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, they're, you know, Paths of Glory. That's right. about it. Um, Sergeant York. Um, that's it. We again. It's a story. What I'm drawn to is stories that we sort of know a little bit, but we really don't know the story. And when you talk about Blackjack Pershing, for example, the American commander, you realize what this man accomplished and how the Americans were responsible for winning the war. I mean, if, it, if the Americans had not gone in the way they did with Pershing in command, the way he led. Germany would have won the war. I mean, everybody at the time was aware of that. The British, the French, and the Germans knew very well. Well, that's a story most people don't know. The German voice in that story, the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. I'm amazed how many people think the Red Baron is simply a cartoon character. Um, I've run into that a lot. No, he is a marvelous three-dimensional character. He's the finest flying ace of the war. That's a good story. And I didn't know any of that when I got involved in this. And I'm, again, it's a story I'm very proud of. It's a story that tells the truth about the American role in the First World War, a story that European historians tend to diminish. Uh, you know, it's all about modern politics, and I stay away from that stuff. And just tell the story from the character's point of view. And also, for the first time, I really want to mention this, this is the first time I have told a story from the point of view of the private, you know, the 19-year-old Marine in the front lines. Uh, he's one of the four pivotal characters in this story. You know, the more modern you go in warfare, the farther the generals are from the front lines. So simply to tell a story from the general's point of view doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, this young Marine private, Roscoe Temple, who's just a magnificent character, and the people around him, they're real. Uh, what happens to them is absolutely historically accurate. And it's a story I was very, very proud to tell. And beyond this, uh, I understand you're working on a trilogy of novels on the Second World War. Right. I'm starting with North Africa. I'm working on that right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I know all our listeners will be looking forward to those coming out, and will want to uh, take a fresh look at Gods and Generals and Last Full Measure, and perhaps explore your other writings on other periods as well. Uh, I'm sorry we have a slightly shortened uh, interview today. Uh, I'd love to talk another uh, two or three hours and, and get into details on all of these. Uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Jeff, thanks very much for being here with us. Uh, hope we can talk again soon. Thank you, Jerry. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio.